Good morning, Forceview. Good morning. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Paul. I am the husband of the preacher. You had to have been here the last two weeks to, to get that, but my wife Elizabeth has been uh, preaching the last two weeks. I'm the one on staff. She's the one who's been doing all the work. Um, but that's not completely true. I have been uh, doing some work. I've been organizing an event called the Tour de Aldershot. Perhaps you've heard of it. Tour de Aldershot is a, a fun bike ride, which is acting as a fundraiser for next door. Craig and Karen were out on a training ride yesterday. <laughs> We're waiting for them to register. I know others are also waiting to register. We have a good number of people coming. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's three distances, 20, 40, and 80 kilometers. 80 is for the hardcore. You better have been training already for that. The 20 and the 40 are going to be fun. They're going to be um, manageable, and they're going to be beautiful. So September 14th, if you would like to come out and support next door and um, join us on a bike ride, if you want to raise $150, you can earn this custom T-shirt designed by, um, by our own Ryan Brewer. So um, that is a unique shirt. I think it looks even better than in the picture, although I haven't seen it complete yet. It's going to look great. Uh, so you can earn that T-shirt as well if you raise money for us uh, for next door. I am... Um, where are we here? Here we go. So we are wrapping up our summer series in the book of Psalms. In fact, it's our second consecutive summer going through the book of Psalms. Are we going to do it again next summer? I'm not sure, but there are 150 of them. So conceivably, we could be doing this for a few more years. And I trust that the Lord has spoken to you in some way this summer, whether you've been here with us or whether you've been listening uh, through your favorite podcast app. The Psalms have a way of speaking to us about our life and circumstances just as they have done in the lives of worshipers throughout the generations. Think about that for a moment. The Psalms have been speaking to worshipers throughout generations. They were nourished, they nourished ancient Israel. They were quoted by Jesus. They've been a part of the church, lec the church lectionary throughout its history. And for us, they inspire many of our worship songs that we sing here on Sunday mornings. As we've gone through the Psalms, you may have noticed uh, something. You may have noticed that they break or divide into two very broad categories. Psalms of praise and psalms of lament or songs of lament. They offer, to, they offer praise to God for his divine presence and comfort, such as Psalm 23 that Elizabeth led us through two weeks ago. And they also contain the raw emotions of suffering and abandonment, or in the case of Psalm 51 that Lois took us through earlier in August, guilt and shame. Beyond suffering and abandonment, guilt and shame, there is another form of lament found within the Psalms, which is perhaps difficult to swallow or understand, and they are the ones that voice raw and unrestrained vengeance. Known as the imprecatory psalms, they include the infamous Psalm 137. In Psalm 137, the, the final verse of the psalm is brutal. It's, the, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a psalmist crying out on behalf of the nation of Israel who have been taken captive by Babylon. And he is wishing on, onto Babylon all that he has experienced. So in his words, he says, God bless those who take the enemies little ones and dash them against the rocks. These are brutal words. Even if it's been happened to you and you're wishing it upon your enemy, 
It is brutal. And you wouldn't be alone if you're asking, what are words like this doing in the Bible? What are they meant to tell us? How can they help us? How is this praise? We're not going to explore that particular psalm, Psalm 137, but we are going to address these questions by exploring a less graphic, but perhaps equally difficult psalm in Psalm 109. So let's begin by reading together. It is a lengthy psalm, so bear with me and follow along. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that, they may, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to, your according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless they arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Elizabeth, as she has read the, uh, from from the Psalms the last two weeks, has closed by saying the word of the Lord. 
And it feels funny to say that, the word of the Lord. What is this? What are these words? What do we do with them? What do we think? It's not uplifting. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've just been guilty of closing my Bible or turning the page when I come across these sorts of psalms, not knowing what to do with them, not really knowing what to think. But as I've engaged with this psalm, Psalm 109, over the past couple of weeks, I feel like I've been able to understand the heart behind the brutality. And that's what I'm hoping that I can bring uh, to you today. What is the heart behind the psalmist? Why all this vitriol? Why all this vengeance? Why this cry for brutality upon his enemy and his enemy's children and his, and his enemy's parents? Why so much? As a lament psalm, this psalm follows a typical structure of invocation, complaint, and petition. The invocation is simply this, verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise. Other well-known songs or psalms that you may be familiar with uh, have the question, How long, O Lord? How long? Or, Will you forget me forever, O God? These are some of the laments that we, uh, that we hear through the Psalms. This is the invocation in verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise. In the wording, there is a sense that the psalmist feels God has been deaf to his cries. It's not just that God is silent, but that God is deaf. God doesn't hear him. He has had his fill of accusations levied against him, false accusations. And he, as a psalmist, as the writer, he can't remain silent and he is tired of God's silence on this issue. He's saying, be not silent, O God of my praise. That is the invocation. The complaint, following the invocation is a complaint. But I think more correctly, we might say verses 2 to 5 give us reason for the psalmist's complaint in verse 1. Maybe verse 1 we can understand as the complaint, and verses 2 to 5 give us a reason to understand what is he complaining about. What has been going on that he feels God has been silent about? Well, it's that the psalmist's enemies have told lies about him and have made false accusations. And these aren't just schoolyard tales. These aren't just little bits of gossip that have hurt his feelings. It's common for lament psalms uh, to employ militaristic imagery. Uh, for an example, in Psalm 35, another lament psalm, David says, Plead my cause, O Lord. Fight against them that fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler. Draw out your spear. And here in verse 3 in Psalm 109, the psalmist says he describes his enemies as having encircled him and having attacked him. So he's employing this military imagery. And what's been the results of these attacks? A couple times uh, throughout the morning, we're going to jump ahead to verses 22 to 25 because these are very personal. This is where the psalm becomes very personal. And we see in verses 22 to 25 that the psalmist is suffering emotionally. He says, my heart is stricken within me. He is suffering physically. He says, my knees are weak from fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. And he is suffering uh, or he is, and he is marginalized socially. He says he is an object of scorn to my accusers. So this is his complaint. This is the depth of despair that he is in. This is the, uh, the, the breadth of the, um, of the accusations. These aren't, this isn't just schoolyard gossip. This isn't just little bits, snitty things here and there. This is real, personal, harmful stuff that is leaving him on the brink of death. So is it okay for us to complain to God? 
Is it okay for us to bring complaints and cries to God? I believe what Psalm 109 tells us is that yes, it is. Psalm 109 gives us permission to bring our complaints and cries to God. God knows them already. He wants us to be in communication with him. He wants us to imagine that he is sitting across the room from us and he wants to hear the cries of our hearts. He wants to know what's going on inside. He wants us to verbalize that, to share that, to pour that out to him. God understands that this is at least cathartic for the psalmist, but even more so, God understands that Psalm 109, that these words display and tell him and reveal the depth of his pain. And God wants to hear our pain. He wants us to talk to him about our pain. And that's what Psalm 109 is doing. It's pouring out to God the depth of his pain. For those of you who have been around uh, for you, even just for a little while, uh, even a few minutes ago, you would have heard about Nextdoor, the ministry center that we operate in Aldershot in West Burlington. And for those of you who have been around Force You even longer, you would remember that Nextdoor was birthed out of a, uh, a ministry that we as a church were instrumental in establishing called Compassion Society. Compassion Society is a clothing and food uh, charity also based out of Aldershot. When Nextdoor was established, um, I was involved with Compassion Society as a board member as part of my role here at Force You Church as a staff person. So in essence, I was wearing these two hats. I was a staff person and a board member. And I saw an opportunity to serve both Nextdoor and the church by establishing Nextdoor as this ministry to serve alongside the food and clothing charity. Food and clothing charity. And when we did that, we had full agreement that this was a good thing. We, we signed a lease agreement and the church was helping contribute to the finances of Compassion Society. But shortly after it was established and shortly after we got operating, something turned. Something turned in the minds of a few of the other board members, people who I had been serving alongside of at Compassion Society. Something turned in the minds of some of the other community leaders in that area. And I was viewed suspiciously. I was um, accused of acting in a conflict of interest. I don't believe those accusations are true. And in fact, I felt very hurt by them. I felt that they were lies. I felt that they were accusations, that they were misrepresentations of my character. And it was painful. It was painful for a long period of time for me. And my prayers during that time were complaints. They were saying, God, don't be silent. Speak up for me. Vindicate me. Vindicate us as a church who were seeking to do the right thing. We were seeking to do your will in this. Psalm 116.2 says that God has inclined his ear. Verse 2 of Psalm 116, he has stooped to hear us. And this inclining of God is a picture of humility and compassion. When we've been hurt, when we've been violated, when we've been falsely accused, when we feel that God is over there in the corner and that he is silent, the Psalms of lament give us permission to cry out to him, even to complain. God will give us an audience. God will stoop to hear us. Now, do I think that God wants us to stay in that spot, to stay in that stuck position of complaining? I think if I were still complaining about my situation seven years ago, that would be a problem that I'd have to work and sort through with God. God would want me to move on from that. 
God doesn't want us to be stuck in that place, but he allows us for a time to bring our complaints and our cries to God when we are in the midst of this pain and suffering. If we jump ahead for a moment to the final verses of this psalm, we'll see that the psalmist has done the same thing. He closes by giving praise to God. We're going to read those verses later, but we can just say now that the psalmist feels one thing about God. He feels that God is over here, that he's silent, that he's not listening to him. But he knows from history, he knows from prior experience that God is on the side of those in need. And so in faith, he declares that to be true. The next stage of the psalm is, uh, is of petition. So for the length of this, uh, kind of the heart of the psalm, you see this petition. Having issued his complaint uh, through to verses 5, he makes his petition. Or to more, put it more plunt, he makes his request for vengeance. In verses 6 and 7 of this lengthy portion of the psalm, the writer is imagining that God would intervene in the judicial system by first appointing, and this is, this is how, how much vitriol there is here. He doesn't just say, appoint a judge. He says, appoint a wicked judge and let an accuser stand against him. Just like I am at the, uh, in, you know, in the crosshairs of an accuser, let an accuser stand against him, a wicked judge and an accuser. And the, so he's imagining that God would intervene in the judicial system by doing this and that he would bring about a favorable verdict. So notice that he's not asking for a lightning bolt to come out of the sky, but he's actually asking his prayers that actually God would work through the system to bring about justice. Recently, many of us were praying for a situation for a person who was in the crosshairs and was facing false accusation and false lies. And part of our prayer for that person was that the justice system, those who are making decisions, would have their eyes opened and realize the falsehood and the lies being told and that justice would come for this person. And so that's the way that we can pray. We can pray that God would work through our systems, our justice system, our healthcare system, our child welfare system to bring about justice. And that's how we could pray. That's how we need to pray. I mentioned that we're going to jump ahead to verse 22 uh, later in the psalm. And I think we can do that again here because we can also see that the psalmist is not only praying that God would work through the system, through the systems to bring about justice, but this is where, or actually this is verse 21. He says more directly, to God, but you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Earlier, God, do justice through the justice system. Later, God, just you do it. You make it happen. You bring justice to this situation for your, for your name's sake. Verses 8 to 19, verses 8 to 19, the psalmist describes what he believes is a just sentence. And as you read it, the retribution seems to pile up like nuclear warheads. You can imagine, uh, you know, in, in North Korea, the nuclear stockpiles getting bigger and bigger. And that's how it feels here as you go through verses 8 to 19. Um, you almost need to read through it again to, to feel the depth of this and, and the brutality of it and the vengeance. May his days be few, speaking about his enemy. May his days be few. In other words, may he be dead. May his wife and children be widowed and orphaned. May they endure a meager existence as beggars on the street. So it's not enough 
to curse the enemy, but to curse the enemy's wife and his children. May his property be seized and his descendants blotted out. And then it's almost like he's praying retroactively. He says, even his mother and his father, may their sins be brought before you, Lord, and in, in your face, and may you judge them for their sins. This is harsh, harsh stuff. Yet to help us understand this vitriol, we need to pay attention to verse 16 and then again to verse 22. In verse 16, what does he say about, the song, about his accuser? He says that his accuser did not remember to show kindness, but pursue, pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. His accuser is being accused of not showing kindness. This word for kindness is, I'm going to say this wrong, hasad. A few of you were here in July. Uh, Doug introduced that word to us. He had you repeat it. I won't do that uh, to you today because I don't even know if I'm saying it right. But the idea is that this is, uh, this is the word um, that describes the loving kindness of God. So he's using this word to describe the accuser's lack of demonstrating the character of God. In other words, if this is God, kindness, steadfast love, my accuser is the complete opposite. He is in complete opposition to who God is in terms of his character. Um, and so we understand that, that you know, if this is complete goodness, his, accusers, his accuser is complete evil, uh, failing to show kindness to the poor and needy. But he's talking about the poor and needy in the third person here. Verse 22, as I mentioned earlier, gets very personal because now he says, for I am poor and needy and my heart is stricken within me. The accuser is, uh, is being unkind to the poor and needy and he is the poor and needy. So perhaps I think it's helpful for us to understand that the psalmist is not so much seeking bloodthirsty vengeance, but rather as much as he is seeking justice. Justice is a, is a biblical concept. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and it means on the one hand, retribution. You'd be familiar with the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so looking at it again, we might see that the psalmist is asking of God, perhaps for just retribution. Look what my enemies did to me, Lord. Do the same to them. But more than just being retributive, more often than not, when we see the word justice in the Old Testament, it is described in a sense of restoration. It was a form of restorative justice. In most places in the Old Testament where you see uh, the word justice, you're going to see it in reference to what theologians, theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. This is a, this form of justice, it's about human rights. It's about fairness. Um, and so the psalmist identifies himself among the quartet of the vulnerable. He is needy and poor among the most vulnerable, and he is lamenting over the injustice. He is asking God to help him, to advocate for him, to restore him. And where would the author, where would the psalmist get this notion of justice, where would it come from? How would he understand it? Well, he would go back ingrained in his memory as a Jew, as an Israelite, would be the Exodus narrative. 
the exit of narratives, uh, the exit of narrative um, uh, is is uh, told in 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 succinct form in Exodus two verses twenty three to twenty five. During Moses' self imposed exile to Midian, it says that God heard the groaning of the Israelites bound in slavery, and had concern for him. And spe- uh, specifically, the words are. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Hearing the cries of the poor, he acted, and he rescued. As a church community, I believe that we need to learn from this psalm. And like the psalmist, we need to create space to lament over injustice. Perhaps we have not experienced injustice in the form of the most vulnerable. Maybe we are not among the quartet of the vulnerable, but injustice is all around us, and it's upon us to pray for those who suffer injustice and to call on God to act. Before Elizabeth and I went away uh, in the summer, we spent as a church a month in the springtime uh, focusing and, and reminding ourselves and learning about together our global mission partners. We have a relationship with missions in Thailand where children are sold into slavery. We have a relationship with Malawi where there is great poverty and frequent environmental disasters. We have a relationship with Ecuador where kids are growing up in slums and being exposed to gangs and violence. We have a relationship with Voice of the Martyrs Uh, where Christians are persecuted for believing in and worshiping Jesus, the freedoms that we take for granted, the freedom to be here this morning. Other people practice this, putting their life at risk. We have a relationship with Muskrat Dam, where there is continual heartache and continual um, uh, death and, and pain in the lives of people there in that community. And if we fail to lament over the injustice that is all around us, if we fail to lament over the injustice with people who we say we are partners with, we will soon conclude, and perhaps by default, that the hard issues of justice are not allowed before God and that praise is our only proper posture before him. Lament is the right posture before God. We need to create room for that. A third of our psalms, 50 of the 150 psalms, are individual psalms of lament. Another 17 of the psalms are corporate songs of psalms of lament, meaning that they are lament, lamenting for the nation of Israel. So 67, almost half of our psalms are psalms of lament. We need to create room as a community of faith, as followers of Jesus, to lament and to cry out to God for justice in the face of injustice. In their commentary on the Psalms, Tucker and Eckert put it like this. Psalm 109 asks us to acknowledge injustice, but then to declare that injustice does not have the final word. Our prayers are meant to be joined with all those seeking justice, so together we might proclaim that the God we serve is indeed a God of justice. And then in Psalm 68 and 5, God is described by the writer as father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. There's two of our quartet there. God is described as the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. It is God's character to care for the vulnerable, and so it is right for us to call on God to act according to who he is, according to his character. 
Psalm 109 is a prayer. It would have been read in a public setting, and it is right for us to read it together as we've done this morning. It gives us permission to cry to God in the face of our pain when he seems silent. It's okay to call on him to act. And it gives us permission to cry out for justice, particularly justice for the quartet of the vulnerable, maybe our quartet of the vulnerable, or what's five? What do you call a group of five? Quintet, the quintet of the vulnerable. Thailand, Malawi, Ecuador, Muskrat Dam, the persecuted church. It doesn't give us permission uh, to ask God to punish our enemies. We must look at this psalm through the lens of Jesus, who calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And it's this Jesus who is, established, who is establishing his kingdom reign and who is reforming our human relationships that we want to remember now as we close our time together. As I've already said, Psalm 109 ends on a hopeful note. It says, With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. By declaring that God will stand alongside the needy one, the psalmist asserts that God stands alongside him. We, like the psalmist, are people in need. We may not be among the quartet or the quintet of the vulnerable, but as people broken by sin and prone to thoughts of vengeance in the face of persecution, we need mercy. And fortunately, we find that mercy in the body and blood of Jesus, who in his mercy became sin so that we might enter into a right and restored relationship with God. And so we're going to celebrate and remember this gift of God found in Jesus, in the body and blood of Jesus, by um, passing the bread, or are we coming forward? Is there instructions on that? I think there is. I'm going to pray over the, uh, the bread and the juice now, and then we'll share communion together. Father, we thank you for your mercy towards us. As broken people in need of mercy, you have extended mercy to us. Thank you that, for your, that you are a God of justice and that you stoop to hear us in the midst of our pain. And we celebrate that this morning and we remember that this morning, that this great act of mercy towards us was found when you went to the cross on our behalf to rescue us. Thank you, Jesus.